Welcome to Living a Sex Positive Life, where we can guarantee the topic will be about sex. We'll talk about the good and the bad, the health and healing benefits, the adventures, the relationships, as well as the crimes and the tragedies. Our mission is to educate, entertain, and just talk about that touchy subject that affects us all, sex. Now here's your host, Angelique Luna. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Living a Sex Positive Life. I'm here with my co-host and husband and partner in crime, John C. Luna. Hello, everyone. Uh, we're li- I'm a little bit exhausted just due to the fact that I just came back from Miami, but we have an awesome guest. I've been fangirling for quite some time to finally have her on the show, Miss Kelly Shibari, and let me tell you a little bit about her background, so please bear with me. Uh, From her background in design and construction in mainstream film and television production to having performed in front of the cameras as the sexually charged figured head for chubby Asian girls everywhere, Kelly Shibari is a stereotype breaking toward the force. During her 10 plus years in the adult entertainment industry as a much sought after performer, Kelly accolades all well-documented name 2013 and 2014 BBW Performer of the Year at Exotica's Fan-Based Awards, the Fannies, and BBW Performer of the Year at the 2015 Inked Awards. Kelly has also named Best BBW Performer at the 2013 and 14 Night Moves Award, who has also bestowed upon her several Best BBW Release Awards. She is also the recipient of two Feminist Porn Awards and an Ex-Biz Award, and has the distinct honor of having been the only plus-size flesh girl in the company's history. Wow, that's quite a mouthful, and I know there's a little bit more. Why don't I let you take over, Kelly? <laughs> um, <laughs> um, so I've done I've done a few things. Hello, <laughs> hello, welcome. I just kind of like to keep busy, I guess. I um, I'm I'm easily amused. You know, I, I tell people all the time I'm easily amused, but I'm also kind of easily bored, and so I'm constantly looking for new things um, and new projects, and and that you know, in a, in a weird way has led to me, um, winning a few awards and getting some accolades. So, uh, I guess it was all for a good, good, uh, goal. Definitely like a good goal. And that's like, yeah, I just had to take a breather because I know your bio is like (laughs) super long and super cool and all that because, uh, let let me try to finish up because I, I, Kelly appears in the, how do you say that word? Ramstein. 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 Okay, I'm not familiarized with that <laughs> music video for Mean Land, hand selected by the iconic director Jonas Ackerlin to appear as the only plus size model in the video. She could also be seen in the series finale of the FX series Son of Anarchy. The co director, writer, and host of Guide to Wicked Sex plus size kelly is also the only plus side model ever to appear in penthouse magazine's popular offshoot penthouse forum june 2014 as well as its flagship publication penthouse january 2016 she is also featured in an episode for documentary producer morgan spurlock's sexish slated to air later this year on his smartish digital network and occasionally lends a hand as a fill-in model for the character of Pan Povey for the FX series Archer. Now, I think that's super cool there. <laughs> wow, you have been busy. I'm still not done <laughs> yet. I mean, but, here, but here's the thing. When you put it all into a bio um, that's, you know, a couple of paragraphs long, it seems like it's a lot. But if you, you know, if you kind of stretch it over a span of 10 or 11 years, it you know, it ends up really kind of being one or two things of, of note a year. Hmm. Still, uh, <laughs> it sounds impressive, but coming into this, I mean, I got to give you kudos. Um, I guess for your courage is the best way to put it because you're, you know, kind of, kind of a pioneer doing again, the BBW field coming out and I will say doing it so well, and then also making all these appearances in mainstream media. Because uh, I know a lot of um, performers and actresses have had a hard time moving into mainstream media. 
Right. Um, pretty cool. Um, thank you. Uh, I think a lot of it is, you know, I, I started off in mainstream. I started off as a roadie um, out of New York, and then I moved to the West Coast. And I lived in Vegas and then in Los Angeles and uh, found that my background in technical theater actually lent itself really well to being an art director or a prop master or a production designer at, at the very end of it. And, um, and I think that because I have a background behind the camera, it's allowed me to, to see the industry from a less performer-based view, if that makes sense. Um, I've, I've always tried to see you know, the productions I work on as, as entire projects as opposed to what my contribution is as a performer for one particular scene. And so I think that it, it, you know, I'm not necessarily you know, I'm, I'm definitely not any younger than any of the current performers, and I'm, um, I'm not, you know, larger or smaller or prettier or, you know, all these things that are subjective to each fan. You know, somebody who might like me might not like somebody else, um, and somebody else, you know, a, a fan who might like a particular performer might not necessarily like, like what I have to offer. But um, I think that the main difference between my body of work and other performers is I've tried to kind of go out of my way and kind of see the plus size community or the plus size niche not as the standalone thing but as a, a part of a larger adult industry and so because of that i've always tried to see what the mainstream industry mainstream porn industry was doing that wasn't being done for plus size women um and to see if i could adapt it for plus size people and i think that's why um a lot of the projects that i've worked on have been kind of branded as, you know, like the first ever or, you know, or the only or something, you know, along those lines. But I think a lot of it is really just, I just wanted to do the proof of concept. And cool. once, once that first initial proof of concept film has been, or project or photo shoot or collaboration has been done, then hopefully, you know, other, you know, the companies will be more open to having other plus size models. And that's kind of been my goal. <laughs> Well, it's interesting coming back, like you said, from uh, the behind the scenes and learning it there first. I, I know m many people in the business, their first time is on the other side of the camera. So I guess that gives you a completely different point of view, as well as gives you a perspective, like you said, about saying uh, where are the niches, what's not getting done, what's not getting applied, and, and being able to, to, to see that, again, from a different perspective. Yeah, I think that um, once you've been on the other side of the camera, you know exactly what the crew and the producer and the director and all these people who are, you know, behind the camera, you hear a lot and you kind of participate in also when you are one of them um, in their perception of what makes an actor a good actor and what makes an actor a bad actor. And, and so much of it is not just, you know, and a lot of this also applies more to porn than to mainstream because we don't necessarily have any like, you know, sex position schools that you do before you get into <laughs> the industry as a performer. Um, but one of the, you know, but little things make a huge difference. You know, you get enough sleep, you stay hydrated, you, um, you know, if you're going to be in front of the camera, you don't go out partying the night before and you certainly aren't partying before the shoot or during the shoot. Um, you're there to do your job. You, you're there to do your performance to the best of your ability. And um, if you don't, and anybody in the crew sees any inkling of why it might not be all that great, then that's all they talk about. And having been on that side of the camera and knowing how the crew will talk about you as a performer if you're not delivering 100% kind of makes me not do those things, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Yeah, it's kind of interesting because then the way you're explaining it, it makes me think it's like, huh, is that how they act like with uh, like, movies like Wonder Woman or Fast and the Furious you know the behind the scenes and technical because some of that stuff you know well I mean you hear you do hear a lot of you know over the years you hear outbursts by actors on set or you hear rumors about how actors were so great and now they're not so great because they're going through a rough patch or they're going you know they have some sort of addiction problem and those kinds of rumors start circling um, you know I think that with with adult performers you know, we're kind of a, an ongoing method acting kind of industry because we don't necessarily 
um, you know, we don't pretend to have penetration. We actually do have penetration. Uh, we might be acting when it comes to dialogue and we might be acting when it comes to exactly how aroused we might be in a particular scene, but it's not necessarily um, something that we go to school for, for, you know, to learn dialogue delivery or anything like that. So with us, the, you know, people notice because they actually see us stumbling around, you know, or not being cognizant if the director is talking to us or not being able to really connect with your scene partner in a scene. And those things, you know, fans see that. And it's not just that the crew talks about you if you're not delivering 100%, um, your fans see it too. And I think that's where a lot of the disappointment comes is, you know, you, you have fans who were huge fans of you when you were like 100% doing great and now maybe not so much, what's going on, you know? And so I try as much as possible to not, not be in those kinds of situations. Well, it's true. There, there's plenty of obviously acting schools out there, but you're right. There is no, as far as I know, training for porn. Um, we put it out there for the world that there needs to be yoga for porn because yeah, even ability is good. Oh yeah. <laughs> y- y- yoga is a good thing. Even if you're just home, home with your wife, yeah. but <laughs> you're, you're right. And I know what, I got I got to uh, see part of a filming once, and I what I was amazed about is obviously there's there's the two performers or the three performers, but there's twelve other people in the room, and the yeah. room is kept nice and cold because the moment it was done, the first thing everyone requested was blankets, and it, it I guess it I mean I've never done it, but it it takes a lot because you're doing it under that type of pressure, the realization that all these other people who are getting paid are sitting there waiting for you and the whole focus is on you, that's got to be something, you know, it takes a little bit to get used to. Yeah, and I think, you know, uh, a lot of fans also don't understand, you know, they've seen maybe a documentary or they've heard, um, you know, a a performer talk about it or they've read a blog, but unless you're actually on the set, you don't, I don't think a lot of fans realize exactly how much work goes into uh, creating a sex scene for their consumption. You know, it's like you said, there's, there may be only two people on camera, uh, but there are a few other people in the background and there's all this equipment and you're constantly stopping and going to change positions. And, um, and then on top of that, you know, you have to have this, this authenticity of, of passion, right. And arousal. And, uh, I have so much respect for the male performers in the industry because, you know, and, and yes, there is some, maybe some, um, you know, better living through chemistry going on there. But uh, I do think that with a lot of the male performers, you know, the requirement is that they have to stay erect and they have to ejaculate at a specific time um, on cue. And if you're not able to do that, then, you know, that's kind of your mark of not having been a good performer as a, as a male performer. And as women, you know, our our requirement is to be pretty and to have our enthusiasm up. But there's no, unless the scene actually calls for female ejaculation, like we actually have no physical means of of proving on camera that we came. So, you know, a lot of fans, you know, see those kinds of scenes and they go, okay, well, that's an authentic orgasm. Maybe it is, maybe it's just really good acting, you know, (laughs) but our job is to put together and and present the best kind of, you know, scenes for fantasy as possible. And, uh, and a lot of times fans kind of confuse that with, with, um, what do you call it? Like availability for sex, you know? So. Absolutely. Totally agree on that part. But the one thing I really liked, um, with your video guide to wicked sex is how you really focus on the communication aspects of the relationship other than just like showing two people having sex. It's just how to communicate different positions, you know, know your limitations and, and your flexibility because sometimes we, we kind of forget and we try to, you know, be an acrobat in bed. Yeah. Well, because if you, you know, especially for, for the, the current, you know, young generation. Um, so much, so many of them learned how to have sex by watching porn. You know, most of, most of us who are older, porn came later, porn came after we found out about how you have sex. So uh, just, and mainly just because of access. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, uh, when I, I had approached a few other companies with the, the idea for a plus size sex ed movie 
And when I approached Jessica Drake and, and Wicked was kind enough to green light the project, it really was something that I wanted to do was to not do the traditional sex ed movie that only talks about positions mm -hmm. and has like a handful of interviews with couples who do, who practice whatever the theme of the, the movie is. Right. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, because what I didn't want to do was to tell people of size, these are the only positions you can do, you know, um, which is kind of this odd, quiet, silent um, implication that you can't do the other ones. Right. And the thing is, I've seen, I know so many plus size women who are so much more flexible than not only me, but other, you know, other women of different sizes. And I, I've seen people who can do uh, amazing things regardless of size. And, um, and so I wanted to make sure that there was an element in the movie that yes, talked about positions because it is a sex ed movie. But for me, I really felt that a lot about um, a lot about good sex is not just about positions and not just about ergonomics of, you know, round peg into a round hole. It's also cerebral, especially as you get older. And we, I would have been amiss if I had, you know, left that part out of the movie. So we tried to really push, um, you know, how to communicate with your partner about descriptive words for size, like what works for you, what works for him. Um, and then also body confidence exercises, uh, both for yourself and with a partner. Yeah. Now, how do you help them with the creativeness? Because I honestly believe a lot of people have forgotten how to be creative with sex and intimacy because people don't realize those are two different things, sex and intimacy. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, and isn't it wonderful when the two are, are at the same time? Oh, yeah. Best orgasms. <laughs> um, I think that, you know... I think that a lot of people try too hard, mm -hmm. you know, and when you try too hard, you end up making things a little too serious. And when you make things a little too serious, then you're not loosening up. And if you're not loosening up, then you're not relaxed enough to actually really enjoy what you're doing. Right. You're trying to prove a point. You're trying to pr prove to your partner that you learned this new skill or you're really good at this or you're the best at that. It doesn't really matter as long as you two are having a good time. You know, I think a lot of people need to be reminded that sex is kind of funny and kind of awkward. And, and you know, and if you don't have any laughter in the bedroom, then you're probably kind of doing it wrong. And, um, you know, I've, I've always found that it's in, it, important to include humor in the bedroom. And if you want to try something, you know, for the first time and you read about it somewhere who knows where you saw it and who knows what it is that you discover that you're, but if it turns you on enough to go, Hey, you know what? I kind of want to try it. You should try it. And if it doesn't work out, then it was kind of probably funny, but still, but still you had the experience of learning whether you liked it or not. And just keep in mind, they might be some injuries, not on purpose. It's just <laughs> part of the whole thing. You know, when you're learning how to ride a bike, yeah, you're going to scratch yourself a few times by falling off. Same thing when you're learning something new in sex. You know, and it's actually really funny that you mentioned that because that is the one thing I don't know how to do. <gasps> really? I, I never learned how to ride a bicycle. It's very <laughs> interesting. But I've always told people that, you know, everybody has a superhero weakness and Mine would be if we were on a planet that was just made up of really thin rows that I probably wouldn't survive. <laughs> <laughs> but, I, you know, I think that in general, um, you know, I think that thing, there are enough serious things going on in the world that, you know, you don't need to make sex serious, too. No, you it's know, supposed the, to be fun. Yeah, I think that, you know, the most important things when it comes to sex is consent. Mm -hmm. And beyond that, once you've once you've gained consent and you're, you know, you're allowed to proceed. And if you do something awkward for the first time, or, you know, even if you've done it a hundred times and something just doesn't work out this time, or it works out weird because of a situation. Um, I think that beating yourself up over that is probably one of the things that is detrimental to increased positive sexuality, because, you know, the first time you have a bad experience, if you're going to shut down because you took it too seriously, and like, I'm never doing that again, you know, um, because it was embarrassing, not because it was pain. Like if it was painful, that's one thing, but 
if it's embarrassing or if it's something that you just really weren't into, um, I think it's completely okay to say, you know what, I didn't like it, but let's try other things, you know, instead of just shutting down completely. Yeah, I always think it's okay to be a little selfish in the bedroom. And what I mean oh, yeah. is, some, yeah, sometimes couples get into it and, and they're so caring about the other person, it's almost hard to enjoy it. And I have to tell pe- you know, people, it's okay, get, get in the moment. Kind of clear your mind, get in there. No one's getting hurt. And if you feel guilty about it later, do something for your partner then. Yeah. I, th- I think that you're the only person who knows what turns you on the best. And if you aren't able to communicate that to your partner so they can help you get there, then you're not only doing yourself a disservice, but you're doing them a disservice. And so I think that, you know, having a conversation as you're trying new things, as you're doing things for the first time is, you know, if you've been doing it again a hundred times, but you kind of want to change a little bit of it, if you don't speak up, then, you know, then how good is that sex actually going to be? But what happens if the person doesn't know how to make themselves happy or knows what turns them on as pleasure i mean because there's a lot of people who don't believe in masturbation or touching themselves Mm -hmm. yeah and and look there are going to be people who are on the extreme conservative end of the spectrum um you know whether it's cultural or something they were taught by their parents or um you know a religious reason or however they were raised um plenty of people especially in this country have been raised to to think that certain things that cause that bring you pleasure are bad, you know, and um, you know there are groups of people in this country that think that women are only here to to create babies, and there's you know, as far as they're concerned, a clitoris doesn't exist, and there's only so much you can do. You know, fortunately for us, the internet exists, so there are there's access to people who might be in those communities who might be like, you know what? maybe there's something else out there, you know? I mean, if you talk 20, 30 years ago or even further, that kind of access didn't exist. So I'm I'm a big fan of, you know, podcasts like yours and, and blogs that talk about, you know, human sexuality from a positive perspective and um, social media and bringing all that up and making it, uh, you know, as much of a, a public conversation as possible with the hope that, you know, it might inspire somebody to go, Hey, you know what? Maybe I should think out of the box I've been in for the past X number of years. Oh, thanks for the shout. I appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah, Because, you know, that's the whole reason we did start the podcast just to, you know, be on the sex positive of all human sexualities, you know, because I see so many different podcasts that they're all niche, but there's a lot out there, you know, from sex abuse survivors to sex workers to polyamory to BDSM. I mean, the scope is, wow, so yeah. much that, you know, if you don't know where to go, find somebody. The resources mm-hmm. are out there on the Internet. So trying to be a stepping stone is always a good start, you know, to point them in the right direction. And I'm always the first one to say, if I don't know the answer, I will help you find someone who knows the correct answer. Exactly. Because- because there's so and, much and, misinformation on the internet. Yeah, continue. Yeah, and I think that's also the the positive aspect of the you know because there's always a positive and a negative aspect of the internet too. But on the positive side, the fact that there is a network of people who use social media uh, to contact each other and to to have these discussions, and especially on a, on a platform like say Twitter over Facebook, you're, you're, the anonymity is. Um, you know, can be bad if you're having to deal with trolls and haters, but on a positive side, you know, if you're a girl or a guy who's, who has some questions, it's rather easy to set up, you know, a fake account, like a fake name account and, and ask these questions of people that you wouldn't ask maybe in a public forum if you were in under your legal name. And, um, I've had my share of people who contact me and ask me questions and much like you, you know, if somebody asks me a question and I can't answer it because I'm not an expert in that particular field, I'm, I probably know somebody within like a six degree of separation to, to get them the, the answers that they're looking for. Hmm. That's the best way to do it. Have connections. Yep. Now yeah. let's talk about the other part of your bio here. Name 2015 person of the year by the sex pose. Kelly has paralyzed her experience and network in the industry into a successful PR marketing firm 
the PRSMG group. In addition to representing clients in the adult entertainment, sexuality, and novelty fields, Kelly has also been a brand ambassador for several pleasure product companies with and featured as the cover bottle for online retailer She Vibes September 2014 issue. In addition to her busy schedule, Kelly is also in the adult industry track coordinator for the International High IQ Society Mensa for the annual North American Conference. Yeah. <laughs> I have um, to say, I like the She Vibe, how they redid your cover, the latest oh, I one. I love... Well, they, they put what, what they do... Um, my understanding of how she vibe works is their artists, you know, do a, a, a slew of several mock-ups to see what direction would look best for their cover. And so, you know, as the years go on, every once in a while, they'll pop up like, Oh yeah, this was a concept image that we did. Um, so the one that, that they officially made was the back girl one, um, which I, you know, it's, it's hanging in my apartment. I, I, that artwork is so pretty that even if it wasn't about me, I would have wanted it anyway. And, um, but I think that at a certain point when I was performing, I, I got kind of bored. <laughs> um, I've, I've always been somebody who was curious and liked to write and do a lot of research and um, performing necessarily wasn't my first, my first love, right? You know, even from the very beginning, I was always kind of behind the camera. so. A couple of years into the industry, a friend of mine suggested, you know, at that time we were all using MySpace, um, somebody <laughs> suggested, hey, have you heard about Twitter? And I said, I don't know. You know, I, I'm having a hard time trying to figure out how to market myself as it is. And he goes, well, why don't you you check it out? You know, and so I, I did. And I kind of got fascinated with the, the mainstream aspect of marketing for adult performers and adult products. And then I started being, you know, interested in the whole PR side of things, and and that kind of tied in with me trying to promote my own self and my own projects. So I started doing my own PR, and after a few years, other people started noticing that I was writing press releases instead of having a publicist, and asked me if I could do the same for them. And you know, over the next five or six years, this kind of turned into a a PR company that also handles social media for their clients. And are there many firms like yours that does that? Oh yeah, there's um, there are probably one, two, probably seven or eight okay. uh, companies that exclusively handle you know public relations for the adult in you know industry. My focus is not really on the performers and is more on um, you know my clients are, are novelty companies and DVD distribution companies, but there are plenty of publicists in the industry that handle only performers. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, but since I was a former performer, I don't think that that was a really good fit. So handling um, clients who are in the novelty space, you know, pleasure products, sex toys, that kind of thing, as well as events um, and uh, uh, DVD distribution companies allows me to still interact and promote things on behalf of them to, to fans. Nice. Now, did you have to try out some toys before you had to do the press release or you just went based on other people's feedback? Um, a lot of it is I usually do ask for, you know, okay. a lot of the companies that I represent are single product companies. Um, you know, it's a small business, uh, usually with an inventor, uh, with, with some sort of personal story behind it, which I find compelling. And if it's an interesting enough product, then it helps me publicize it because then I like the product too. Um, I tend to have a, a, a love, I guess, for um, entrepreneur types. Mm -hmm. uh, so I tend to gravitate towards those kinds of clients. That's fantastic because um, having tried to open a business in the adult industry previously, mm -hmm. of course, it's an uphill battle for everything you do the moment you mention that you have anything to do with it, at least on the East Coast. West Coast, I don't know if it's a little bit more uh, uh, easier over there. But problems um, with the credit card company, problems with hosting companies. Um, yeah, there. That's why they, we actually have a, a, a you know a, a really solid cottage industry of uh, you know web hosts and payment processors. You know who specifically handle adult because most most payment processors and banks 
uh, you know, view the adult industry as a high risk. And unfortunately, we've lost Kelly. This is due to Skype. Oh, we're back. Right. Yeah. We lost you for a moment, but you're back. Ah, uh, where was I? Uh, you started to say about how the adult industry has their merchants and has their... Right. Um, you know, the adult industry has its own little cottage industry of payment processors and uh, hosting services and things like that because they understand the industry and they understand that it's not the same high-risk investment that a mainstream bank would see it as. So, um, so I think, you know, a lot of it is... It, is the same whether you're on the East Coast or West Coast because so much of it is, is in you know is on the internet. Um, but where the where the the difficulty comes from for new companies or new inventors of sex toys is the industry is very small. It appears mm-hmm. to be very big. There are a lot of performers, but as a industry, we're actually very small and tight knit, and everybody knows everybody. And so a lot of times, you know, clients who are new to the space it helps to actually have a publicist or somebody in the know, uh, whether it's a salesperson um, or a distribution company or something to walk you through and say, Hey, yeah, this, this person's cool. It's kind of like having a members only club and, but you can actually bring a friend in as so your friend, your friend can come in and that's how they get in. And so for a lot of, you know, also for performers who are new, you know, publicists, a lot of the time is the first time they get to do signings at events and, um, get to if they don't have an agent you know a a publicist can sometimes introduce you to the agents or take you to um independent producers who are not part of the the agency system you know so uh for performers there are publicists who are very very good at that for novelties um, there are publicists who are also good at that um and uh so we're more like not just not just marketing people and not just uh, publicity people but we're also like introductory people and networking people uh for other people in the industry for them almost sounds like you know similar to a lifestyle like a either a bdsm or leather community you have to almost be vetted yes. and the, your your publicist is your the person vetting you it's like okay yeah this is good you know that's the best way yeah, how i see it it's it's kind of along those lines because you know we're an industry that gets shunned on a regular basis by the mainstream so the last thing we want to do is to open up the floodgates to everybody. We want to make sure that we're kind of insular and protected um, because we deal with that kind of stuff on a daily basis anyway. So, um, so if you have somebody in the know who's like willing to take you by the hand and kind of walk you around, introduce you to people, then, you know, then you're, you're kind of legitimized. Good to know. Now we know how to put our foot in the door there. Get a publicist. Yeah. Well, not necessarily. It's a lot of it, I mean, you as a podcast have enough people that you're interviewing probably from the industry that you probably over over time, people be like, oh, yeah, you know, Angelique and, um, are, and John are great. Like, we, everybody knows them. So as a media company, it's a little bit different for you guys. Oh, we, we can dream one day. <laughs> so. <laughs> I just, I'm curious about, I, I'm going back to your bio. Sorry if I'm bu- bouncing around. Um, with all the different awards that you've won, like the Feminist Awards, I don't think a lot of people are familiarized with them. Can you c- elaborate a little bit more about those guys or girls? So feminist, feminist porn um, is is a definitive term for a specific kind of porn that uh, probably hit its peak about three or four years ago and you know on one hand you can say that it's become accepted and so that's why it's not such a a a hot button conversational topic um on the other hand you could say that there's you know it 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 made its mark and then some of the key players in that space kind of either retired or moved on to doing other things or took a sabbatical um but feminist porn as a general rule is the notion that most porn most mainstream porn is inherently misogynistic and um, portrays women in a, you know, sex, like fembot kind of way that they're really just an object and they have to fit a certain societal mold for like size and um, height and ability and mm. color and, and all of these things. And so feminist porn, if you search feminist porn on a, re- on a regular basis, what you'll find is porn that, um, that, 
shows the sexual nature of of what we would call real women. Not to say that you know slender California buxom blondes aren't real women either, but this is more you know women with multiple hair colors and tattoos and you know things that we used to maybe call alt back in the day mm-hmm. now is considered more kind of feminist but it because now it also includes things like gender so you have women who don't shave women who um have tattoos women who have multicolored hair or shaved heads um women who have piercings um men and women who and, and all this applies towards men and women as well and also applies to gender. So are you male identified? Are you female identified? Are you trans? And so all of these kind of humanistic um, acceptance niches all kind of join together and is called feminist porn. Interesting. And, and, and then on the production side, and, that, and that's on the consumer side, on the production side, it includes things like um, if you want to use a condom, you can use a condom. If you want to, you know, a lot of it is consent based. So before seeing uh, there will be a, like a, a short interview of like, what, what is it that turns you on? What are the things that don't turn you on? And so the scenes that are created are really are marketed as more authentic scenes. If that makes sense, then, mm-hmm. then like this, then a fabricated studio engineered porn scene. And so in my case, you know, having a sex, a, a sex educational movie for people of size falls into feminist porn. Interesting. Yeah, that that was a little bit more than I knew. So thanks for the <laughs> clarification. No, seriously, because as far as I knew, feminist porn were written and directed by women to for a women's perspective of porn. That was, that's, I guess, the Cliff Notes version of it. Yeah, but um, a lot of it is, yeah, there's a, a big conversation about what is the male gaze versus the feminist gaze. And so a lot of the porn is you know, for, in the feminist field is created by, by women who are, who identify as queer, um, or people of color or plus size, um, or any of those other kind of like what we, what mainstream beauty standards would consider fringe. Right. But mm-hmm. what happened is a lot of performers who performed in mainstream porn were also coming back and saying, you know, all these things that you, all these things that you say that make you feminist porn that then inherently imply that if you don't do these things, then you're misogynistic mainstream porn. Well, I've been on set for the past five years and I've done all these scenes and never have I ever been asked to do things that I didn't want to do. So, you know, as much as feminist porn did really, really well um, in terms of like media and marketing, there was also a little bit of a backlash from the mainstream performers who were saying, well, you know, I've never been treated badly on a mainstream set either. It's funny, it goes so, back to a binary system that it's either feminist or it's misogynistic. And I'm sure there's a whole rainbow out there of, of sets absolutely. and how people are treated. Yeah, and, and, that, and I think that was kind of the inherent problem with labeling something a feminist product. Because if you say that it is, then you're saying that anything that doesn't adhere to the tenets of what makes it a feminist product is, is a bad thing, you know? Hmm. And... And, and it was interesting because at, in, at the height of the conversation about feminist porn, they were talking about things like workman's comp and um, proper pay and, uh, um, and those kinds of protections for, for, for performers. And in reality, not even the feminist porn companies had those kinds of protections for performers. So interesting. I, I think we're in a place now where you know, people are kind of trying to, you know, people try to define different communities in porn on a regular basis. And I think we're kind of back to this, you know, hopefully over the next few years, we'll try to redefine, you know, maybe it's independent film, independent adult film versus studio. You know, maybe that's the definition that makes more sense. I don't know, being, being, I still love the alternative name. I didn't realize that went to there. I guess just because of how much I loved alternative music in the 90s. It just right. sounded nicer and friendlier to me. But, yeah, um, think, you know, when, when you, you know, alternative is a blanket term. And I think the millennial version of alternative is to embrace difference and, to, you know, embrace your weird, like that kind of thing. And, and that gets, uh, when that happens at the same time as, 
you know, LGBT acceptance and trans trans bathroom rights and all these things at the same time, then it becomes just more than just alternative. And it becomes, you know, in as far as they're concerned, feminist. Hmm. Wow, it's interesting how just the vocabulary just changes on a yearly yeah. basis on what's what in the oh, industry. Yeah. yeah, even the way uh, plus-size porn has been marketed has changed over the years. You know, it used to be one of those things that, you know, they would use words like whale um, or, you know, you know, words like fat and giant and like all these kind of um, derogatory definitions uh, for plus size people. And they would name their movies that because that was the easiest way to find those titles in, in a video store, because you're quickly trying to, you know, skim through all the titles. Now you have the internet, you can use keywords and search. And so we've been able to create products that don't necessarily go, you know, use those derogatory names. We can actually be more interesting, you know, to say things like, big you know and um or curvy and and people kind of understand that or bbw you know uh, for that matter and people understand what it means much more positive terms that would actually encourage someone who is a bbw fan or is a bbw to actually buy those products absolutely Wow, talk about you know sex history lesson here. I honestly, I, I might be too young to remember whale as part of a the plus size things, or maybe I, I just was... never saw that. Was that seventies or eighties? Yeah. No, that was nineties. Oh, no. no, even just as as um, as recent as two thousand twelve thirteen is, um, we have our industry has different genres of porn, you know, whether it's couples porn or feature film or vignette or parody, you know, one of the most popular genres of porn is gonzo. What's and that? The easiest, easiest way to describe gonzo was, you know, in the very beginning of porn, you had movies that you went to go see in a movie theater. And so they had a, a script and a storyline. And, you know, unless you were going to a peep show or you're going to, um, to, um, what are they called? Uh, like stag films, right? Right. Like short, and those are like short films that just show, and you're, so you're kind of a voyeur. But when porn, the porn industry became um, a legitimate industry, you know, they were making films that were being shown in movie theaters, so they had a storyline. And then in the, um, I'm not sure if I have the timeline on this absolutely correct, but I would say maybe late 80s, early 90s, we started seeing this like emergence of gonzo porn, which is literally the easiest way to describe it is there's no story (laughs) or there's a very very short introductory story to kind of set up the scene but it's very similar to improv where there's no script that you follow um it's usually just one person you know a guy and a girl and they kind of set up the scene in like three minutes and then they get right to the sex and then the camera kind of slowly pans away at the end you know when the girl is you know when the guy has finished on the girl or in the girl or however you want to finish the scene Hmm. um and the godfather for most of us of gonzo porn is this director named Rodney Moore, and especially for niche. And Rodney is still a director. He still has, you know, productions that still go out and, and he still wins awards. And, but his, his focus has always been on um, trans performers, uh, feet fetish, and plus size. And so for a lot of us in the industry, if it weren't for Rodney, plus size porn wouldn't be where it is mm-hmm. um, because he was one of the very, very first directors to showcase women of size as a beautiful thing. And one of his titles, one of his series was a title called whale watchers. You know, his other line is called scale busting babes. And, you know, a lot of performers, you know, in, in the two thousands were really offended that they were in a title called whale watchers. And I ha- I've had to explain this over and over and over. And I say, you don't understand if you, you're not, this is not a keyword search. <laughs> you know, this is in the nineties, people would go to a video store and go to like the adult section in the back and try to make a really quick decision. And if you have an obscure sounding title, that sounds like, you know, um, round roly poly girls. Right. And then on the other side, you've got whale watchers. You, you know where your plus size titles are. And so you're able to grab it and leave and go home so you can watch your movie at home. It's not like that gig is now where you can watch it on your phone. 
And there was a lot so, less a- anonymity back then because I remember going into a video store and, you know, you're in the back room, of course, with the, the beaded yep. curtain separating you oh, from yeah. the rest of it. So and and then, of course, very so often you need to have the kid who would poke his head in, realize that someone else is there and run away. Yep. You know, you know and, now, now you go on the Internet and you can just type in, you know, you can type in any version of plus size. So you can type in fat girl porn or, you know, big girl porn or plus size porn or BBW and you'd find what you're looking for. Um, and so the titles aren't as important as how we save the information on the Internet when we as a production company put up the information. So if we keyword it and we tag it with the words that people will use to search it, then the title doesn't have to have it. So it sounds like the titles, although you know, even now I'm hearing them say sound insulting, they weren't meant to be. They, they were just, what, do we, what can we do to shock people and get them right. to pick up this porn instead of the other? And yeah. at that and, time, it was whale watchers. Yeah. And, and, and so, you know, by the time I got around to it, I was, you know, I think he had like whale watchers 18 or 22 or whatever it was. <laughs> and so I saw it and I was like, this is so cool because this is a legacy project, right? This is a legacy series that he had. But over time, I think, I don't even know if he even makes that title anymore because there was such a... a, a Controversy? A big, yeah. Yeah. You know, but there was no consideration for what he actually has done for plus size porn to begin with. I think you know? people forget that, that the obstacles that a lot of the minorities, the plus sizes, people of color, Hispanics, Latins, Asians have gone through in the adult industry because it almost seems that everyone wants the, you know, Ken and Barbie look for porn. Well, I think it's it's, it's that, but it's also, you know, you see you see the same kind of of um, thing happening in mainstream with the mainstream performers. Um, you know, when I say mainstream, I mean the girls who are not in a particular niche. Um, I I think that performers, as a general rule, right, or people as a general rule, um, only see the world as it applies to them in this current generation and there's often you know i mean we see this with politics right now there's no consideration for history oh and, none. oh no you know, there's no you know people people some people in the past have written you know history of porn type books and people in the industry don't buy them fans buy them you know but there's no um understanding or appreciation of his you know of the history of this industry um from the majority of the people who are in the industry Wow. And and if they did, then it would probably change how they perceived things or people. Well, history, especially, and I'm not, I hate, okay, I'm not going to sound old and pick on millennials, but, <laughs> and, and I try not to, but especially lately, it seems like history gets overwritten. And well, we have the a prime example right here in Orlando, Florida. The Confederate statue that was at Lake Eola got torn down mm-hmm. because everyone was upset for what it stood for the well, Confederate and, and slavery. And I'm like, dude, that is part of our history. That was Civil War. And, and New Orleans went through that, too. And and, and so I think that it's I, I, I don't know the best way to say say this, but I think that. A lot of look. Some history that's rewritten or overwritten is amazing, you know. <laughs> um, women's rights, women's vote, you know, African American rights and vote. Like, it's there's a lot of overwritten history that deserve to be overwritten. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of history that would explain why things are the way they are right now, that a lot of people don't seem to want to know or want to learn because they're too busy having to deal with their current situation, whether it's to make money to pay bills or um, their artistic endeavors or, or whatever it is that they're pursuing at the moment, that's what's taking up all the time. And, and look, I know how I was, I know how I was at their age. And yes, that that's what that's, you know, John, you and I can sound old together, <laughs> um, but, but look, I know how I was when I was in my twenties. I have, you know, I have my yearbooks and I have photo albums from back then. You know, I had my clippings of Greenpeace and trying to save the world and how, you know, the world is a horrible place because politics ruins everything, which I guess it still kind of does. But, <laughs> um, but now that I'm older, I can see things from a little bit more pragmatic place, you know, rather than just a passionate place. True, 
True. And I, I do think we can learn things as much as sometimes I will judge. We can learn things from the younger generation. They do see things um, as judging. a different point of view. No, so. I'm, I'm still judging. Sorry. After I got ripped to shreds the other day on my Facebook wall for posting something of 21 old women traditions that we should have. You know, and they were bitching about the last one, number 21, that the man should pay. And all of a sudden, I was trying to explain it based on my experience of like, for example, a top and a bottom in a relationship. Mm -hmm. You're going to have someone who's going to dominate who's going to say that. Well, all of a sudden, it was a non-gender binary microaggression I was using. I'm like... I don't know what the fuck the, it, that word means to begin with, but no. Well, I like look. I, I see their point, right? And and this is the kind of flack that that people who are in the public eye will will get, right? You're none of us choose to to be a leader, right? Um, just because you're a performer and you have a social media platform to speak from, or you have a podcast, or a TV show, or you own a, a production company. Um, People who are listening assume that you are the authority, and when you don't respect them, when you you know when you're talking about something, then they feel that that you have shunned them, right, or have otherwise made them feel less than a, a, a whole human being. Look, it's not your fault. It's not my fault. If some of us in the world prefer traditional gender roles, right? Mm-hmm. You know, these days you kind of have to frame it that way first, you know, so that you're not as offensive to people who may be offended by people who don't um, include all genders. And, you know, the way you, you know, we're talking about, you know, the guy should pay, right? That's a traditional gender role. That's a 1950s household fetish kink. And if you want to explain it that way, then it's kind of weird how they'll accept that. <laughs> you know, it's true. Your traditional gender role as a fetish. They will accept that, but it's but they don't want to to have that be like the norm. Well, I think I'm going to start using that. All the, it, it's a fetish kink now, but yeah. I mean that's why I always put the disclaimer on the show. It's like we're we're here to teach as much as to learn, and we're always open to learn, and you yeah. know, especially being corrected with gender and pronouns and. I try my best. I don't offend. I always say thank you for correcting me or thank you for giving me the information because I don't want to offend. I'm like the last person. I've gone through oppression myself. I'm a a female Mexican who's a bisexual swinger. How much more (laughs) discrimination could I get in an open relationship? Sorry, I forgot that part. Right. Right. (laughs) So, um, and look, I fall into that too. I'm a mid-40s, you know, Asian plus size woman. Right. I fit, you know, you and I fit into a lot of um, subcategories. I I find that and I am not again, look, I'm human. I don't succeed every single time. Sometimes my emotion gets the better of me. But most of the time I try to do exactly what you just did, which is if somebody says something that sounds angry because of something I said, I try very hard to see it from their perspective. Um, You know, this is a similar yet different story is. You know, I've done enough interviews where there's a comment section, you know, at the bottom, whether it's Huffington Post or Cosmo or whatever. And look, there's a a share. I have my share of people who would never want to see me naked. Right. And hate the fact that a mainstream publication was like, yes, plus size porn. Right. Um, And they'll come after me with comments like, oh, God, I would never want to see you naked or I would never masturbate to you. Uh, and my response has always been, well, you know what? Good for you for knowing what you like because you know, what you don't like is it probably means you know what you like and not everybody does. That's and a good I comeback. Think, and I think that with most people, a lot of times the anger comes from a place where they feel like they're not being heard. And if you acknowledge the fact that you can you hear them even though you don't agree with them, um, it kind of diffuses the situation nine times out of ten. Agreed, because once I turned around and I said, okay, well, so how would you present these 21 ways? And then they're like, oh, and I'm like, yeah, if you started that way, we wouldn't have this argument. You know, they they could apply to everybody. Just the one, just one freaking one out of 21. They were just making a big scene on my Facebook. Sorry, I'm still bitter. It's just. And look, look, here's the other thing is the 
the more they're talking, the more attention you're getting. <laughs> so there There's no such too. thing as bad press. Yes, I know. <laughs> well, there, there is bad press, trust me. I've had my fair share. But I, I think that most press is good press, mm-hmm. you know. And um, I, I think that if you're having any sort of discourse on Facebook or any other platform that allows for a back and forth and it continues instead of just devolving into a screaming match, then I think everybody's winning, you know. And, and, and look, there are people that I deal with on a regular basis who I, I'm never going to be able to change their minds. Um, and, and that's okay, too. You know, they're able to live their lives the way they want. And I can go and live my life the way I want. That's totally okay. But these are things that I didn't know in my 20s. True, (laughs) true. We've learned that as we've gotten older, yes. And we still keep learning lessons like that because we're eventually going to find someone who's going to challenge our ethics and way of thinking that we're just like, okay, I I learned something new. I'll add it to my bucket list. You know, and that, and then, you know, coming full circle, like that applies to, to relationships and sex as well is I think that all of us, when we're younger, we try so hard, you know, cause like rejection is such a big thing. You know, one guy rejects you or a girl rejects you and your world's falling apart. You know, you're never going to date again. You're, you're, <laughs> you're never going to go back in the pool. I guess you're just going to hide under your blanket fort forever, you know, and, and the older you get, you realize that there are a lot of people out there that you can, you can date. And there are a lot of people that you can, you know, um, keep, keep trying out and eventually, hopefully you'll find the right match. And sometimes that's an open relationship. Sometimes it's a monogamous one. Um, Whatever it is that works for you and you find your tribe and the one person in your tribe that you get along with, that's the person for you, you know? And I think that you kind of almost have to shop around. Otherwise, oh. you're insular. <laughs> Absolutely. We're still waiting for our teenage daughter to acknowledge that because we can't handle the emotional roller coaster every month. Oh, my God, it's over. I'm not going to find somebody. <laughs> it was just like, it's okay. You'll get, no, it's not. I'm like, oh. but, you well, know, the funny uh, part, I know a couple of 20 and 30-year-olds who do that. Yep. Look, I've done it, too. I mean, I've done it, you know, as, as, as recently as a few years ago. You know, it's um, – but what happens is you you realize that everybody is different. And look, in the in the I think it was the fifties. I don't think it was the forties. I mean, people would say I'm dating, and dating means that you're dating multiple people. You're just, and you're not having sex with any of them, but you're being courted, right? Mm-hmm. You have bows, and you have people who are trying to woo you. And the difference between then and now is we now all have sex. Yeah. Right. And because of our older thought process about what sex means, um, a lot of people equate, if I'm having sex, I can only have sex with one person and I'm in now in a monogamous relationship. And, and that doesn't work for everybody. Works for a lot of people, but not for everybody. And, um, you know, for some people, they want to, you know, date and shop around. And that also includes sexual compatibility. So we're kind of obviously in a very different generation, but the whole concept of dating until you find your right match has been around for a very long time. Yeah. Ever since we got, got rid of arranged marriages. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Oh no, they still exist in certain cultures. Yeah. In certain cultures, but not the overall. That's why I said there's a small percentage there. Kelly. One of the biggest lessons I learned was, you know, maybe I shouldn't, maybe it's okay to, to shop around and date. So, I kind of encourage people to do the same as long as they're, you know, as whoever they're with right now is in agreement. (laughs) It's better than buying immediately and having regrets. Yes. Yes. Shop and try (laughs) out. Know what you want before you buy. Yeah. And there's no shame in that. And there shouldn't be. Yeah. Kelly, it's been fantastic. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for making all my dreams come true to be on my podcast. Because, <laughs> girl, I've been following you for such a long time. And it's like, yeah, you know, I was on my Facebook wall a couple of days ago, showed up my first time in Exotica on uh, 2011. So that's mm-hmm. when I was like writing around and I first saw you and how you were always, you know, body positive and, you know, really didn't give a shit what people thought because you were big, beautiful and bold. So thank you so much. Thank you very much. So how can our listeners find you? Um, I'm extremely accessible on social media. Um, I'm, you know, 
at Kelly Shabari on Twitter. I'm at Kelly Shabari on Facebook. Uh, my Facebook page is Miss Kelly Shabari. I'm Kelly Shabari on Instagram. Technically, if you look, if you do a Google search on, on you know, for my name, you'll be able to find all my, and, and I, there's only one. There, I've been very meticulous about not, about making sure that there aren't any like fake accounts. Awesome. Well, you can find me everywhere on social media as Miss Angelique Luna and the podcast on the website, Living a Sex Positive Life and iTunes and Spreaker. And you can find me on Twitter and Facebook as John C. Luna. Give a yell out and let us know how we're doing. Thanks, everyone. Have a good night. Bye. Bye.